Welcome to the Mission Explored podcast, a show to help you grow in your understanding of Jesus' global mission and discover how you can join in wherever you are. I'm your host Andy and today we're talking about what it means to follow Jesus in the context of a West African animist culture and also mission and racism with Milky. Milky, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me and I look forward to exploring this subject. So uh, Milky, tell us a bit about yourself. Where are you from and, and what do you do day to day? I come from Guinea-Bissau uh, in West Africa. If you want to locate that in the map, uh, go to find Senegal on the coast of North Africa. And at the bottom, south of Senegal, there is a small, tiny country called Guinea-Bissau. And I'm part of a people group called the Manjaks or Manjakus in Portuguese. Okay, so you're here in the UK. What what do you do at the moment? What's what's your job? I am a youth worker or Christian youth evangelist. Uh, I work with a British youth evangelistic mission organisation in Great Yarmouth area. Okay, so just tell us a bit about your home country and your people groups. So... You're from an unreached people group coming to share the gospel with us Brits, so so thank you for coming. But t- tell us tell us a bit about what it's like, uh, what the church situation is like. Uh, thank you for asking this question. Uh, it's interesting that I, I personally never thought about the church situation of my own people group up until five years ago when we worked together uh, in Asia, and you mentioned, oh, uh, your people group is one of those enriched people group, and that was, oh, wow, is it? And then you kind of showed me details, and then I became curious about learning more about that, and so I finally had opportunity to visit uh, my country and explore a little bit more uh, what the penetration uh, degree of the gospel uh, into my people group was and it's quite shallow it's still very shallow at the moment uh, in the village in the main village there isn't really a vibrant church there is a church there but uh, on the weekend that I was around uh, people didn't turn up because it was raining and also there weren't many members uh, but there are a few uh, here and there, uh, some people that have converted to Christianity, but it's still very, very on the surface still. Mm, okay, and just just tell us a bit about your your own story. So you um, you left Guinea-Bissau to go to Portugal, and you became a Christian there before coming to the UK. Uh, actually, my first contact with the gospel was back in Guinea-Bissau, in the capital city, in Bissau. I was there, and uh, I must be around eight, nine years old, when uh, the local evangelical uh, church sent an evangelist into my town, and they started doing children's work, and all they did was to come on Saturdays around four o'clock and just share Bible stories. You'd start from creation and then do a progressive narrative through the, uh, the the Bible. So I became very interested and started going to that. And shortly after that, I started going to, uh, to the meetings 
because they sent in a pastor into the town that started home meetings. So I secretly went because my dad would not allow us to go into a Protestant church. And then a year later or so, I went to Portugal. And when I got to Portugal, being that young, I did not understand that, the concept of going and finding a church. So I never went to church until... Uh, about six years later, really, when one of my sisters that stayed in Guinea-Bissau moved to Portugal and came on fire for the Lord, and the first thing that she wanted to do was to find a church. And guess who took her around looking for a church? I took her, we found one Assemblies of God, we went in, we enjoyed it, and I kept going week in and week out. But conversion only took place a year later. Okay. Oh, that's wonderful to hear that story, Milky. But it sounds like there's a big challenge. And over breakfast, you were, you were telling me there's a number of people from the Manjak people group who've become Christian tend to be the people who have migrated away from their village, uh, who were less under the pressure of the family. So people who've gone to Senegal or to, to other places. So just tell us a bit about some of the the pressures that they might be under um, if you're a Christian uh, in a... Yeah, an ordinary village in Guinea-Bissau. So uh, when I went down July, August 2021, I was in the village where my mum lives, a fairly new village, and there is a small church there. uh, And the church hasn't got doors, windows. It's just wall with zinc on top and no chairs there. Another 10 people come in, they won't have enough space for everyone. But what was remarkable about it is that it was started by two believers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but halfway, one of those believers, I mean, because of the poverty in the area, he married uh, a second wife, a second lady, and he left the church. And, and eventually got a third wife, leaving just one uh, believer to kind of lead up the work there. He's got a wife, one wife and he's got four kids and he's looking after a uh, family. Uh, but sometimes in the two, three weeks that I was there, we couldn't have church service because he had to go work on the field in order to provide for the family and so he did not have means really to survive and he struggles big time and why am I mentioning this I'm mentioning this because there is a huge need Mm. and I think anyone really could be useful in that context Mm. you know I was there on one Sunday and you hear some outrageous things Uh, like the struggle that began with Jezebel and uh, Isaiah, or no, uh, uh, Elijah. Elijah. Yeah. Jezebel and Elijah ended with John Baptist and Herodias. And so the spirit of Jezebel came through generations until he reached the time of John Baptist and being the spirit of Elijah. That battle ended there. And so you sit there and go, wow. How did you come on, come up with this? <laughs> so there's some this is outrageous. <laughs> but that is just to illustrate the n- level of, uh, and the necessity for a proper Bible teaching. Yeah. 
and even it wasn't said by the brother that is leading the congregation he, that was a guest preacher but for people that don't really know much about the bible it's easy to buy into that sort of story into that sort mm. of narrative and in conversation with the the brother that is heading up this work he said that one of the things that he would like to do was to go and have ministerial training that he himself has not been to a bible school uh he's just a brother that saw the need and that kind of congregation it's been supported by a local church uh in the neighboring bigger kind of city but it's struggling so so there is a lot of needs there and it's almost like a virgin territory really to do ministry to empower local people to teach local people uh, to show them how to understand and read the bible and some of the teachings you know they can be they could be corrected but even though they don't really uh, have that much preparation they're still doing amazing work mm. i sat there humbled by the amount of work they're doing they are reaching out to four other communities even though they didn't have that much preparation. And that kind of challenged me that we here in Britain, we have to design and think through uh, and elaborate an infallible plan, as a results guaranteed, a successful plan before we go into the ground, before we start doing the work of evangelism. And these people, they just go and they learn on the go. And, and, and as they grow, you know, the theology one day, they'll look back and say, how on earth did I say those things? <laughs> but they're still doing it. And it reminds me that actually Paul corrects lots of churches because they were making mistakes. Uh, and who makes mistakes? Those that are doing. We don't make mistakes in the West because we're not doing. Mm. So that's a big, big challenge. Not necessarily wait till we've got it all sorted before we step out and share the gospel absolutely yes yeah. one, of, one of the other things that you have, have shared milky is about uh, your auntie and her her wish for you to help with with a funeral to, and and that's a big part of the idol worship ancestor worship and you had quite a lovely response to her because as a christian you said i'm not going to do that but you had another suggestion so just tell us a bit about that yeah Something really big about my culture is that the the ancestors are very, very important. And I think sometimes when I read the Old Testament, I, I think, you know, we understand that so well. And so for the elders of the house, there is like a, a sculpture that is bought and dedicated to them. And drinks are offered before them and blood sometimes are offered uh, to these idols. And so when someone kind of passes away in our culture, uh, there is a funeral. Uh, and in that f sort of funeral, you know, everyone from the family, they do their best to honour the deceased person. Yeah. Be it by buying expensive linens, being bit by sacrificing. And uh, the highest animal that you can sacrifice is a cow. 
And so that is just part of the culture. You have to do it. And so much so that nowadays, because people don't have a lot of money, uh, what the children of the house do, they call each other up and say, let's put money together and let's do grandfather's funeral. So people around in the village can see how honoured by the children of the house that person is. And so when I got there this summer, uh, one of my cousins came and she was explaining to me my duties and what I should do and what not. And one of our aunties sat there next to us as well. She was listening. So I said to her, listen, you know, I don't really agree with these things. You know why? Because often we don't really know how these people live, these aunties and uncles. Sometimes they struggle in their last days, but we wait until their funeral, and then we call people that have never had any contact with these aunts and uncles. And then we want them to put money together in order to do their funeral. I say, I don't agree with this. And then I say, you know, what is the best thing to do? For me, the best thing to do is for us to call each other up and say, oh, we still got this uncle living his advancing ages in years. Let's put some money together and just bless him so we can buy some meat, buy some juice and buy some drink and just gladden his own heart. And the auntie that sat next to us, uh, she Pause for a minute and then say to to my cousin, say, listen carefully to what he's saying. Uh, and that is just a story of how, uh, even though cultural norms hold people back and keep them locked into that dynamics of you know idol sacrificing, that they still can understand an aspect of actual, you know. Now, if they bless me now, I'll be able to enjoy it. But when I die, no matter what they sacrifice, I'll never enjoy that. Yeah, that's really lovely. And I think it's a cool story that on the one hand, you're able to hold firm to your faith in Christ and not participate in the idolatrous funeral rites. But yet you had this alternative way to bless your family. So that was really cool. So your auntie said, listen to you. So she was sort of beginning to accept it a little bit. Yes, you could say, yes, she was beginning to accept it. But at the same time, she won't tell me, oh, okay, now you don't need to do my funeral. Uh, just do as you said. <laughs> and that is the, the challenge that you can face in that culture when mm. they see that what you are saying is actual it makes sense, mm -hmm. but at the same time, they don't want to give up the entitlement that they have of mm -hmm. you doing their funerals once mm -hmm. they pass. And I guess it's quite different for you because you're migrated away and you don't have the daily pressure of being in, in that situation. Um, Absolutely. Mm. So, Milky, you and I had the opportunity to work together in... Asia on a church planting team, sharing the gospel with an unreached people group. So completely away from your home in West Africa, completely away from my home in the UK. So tell us a bit about that, that year and what did you do and yeah, what did you enjoy about it? I loved every bit of what we did there. I learned so much about teamwork. When I got there, I felt like, wow, this is what I, made, I was made to do. 
could because I could see how my gifts and skills fit into that context and we responsible for making first contacts and uh, sowing the first seeds of the gospel uh, among the locals and I had some peculiarities that contributed for that uh, which was having dreadlocks and being uh, dark-skinned. That's very helpful Milky so I'm white and Milky's back in case you've uh, not guessed that um, already from what we've talked about where we're from and uh, yeah I just wanted to talk to you a little bit today about your experiences of racism and one thing that did happen I don't know whether you'd call this racist but I'm interested to know how you felt when we walked down the street there would be people shouting almost every day at me saying hey look a foreigner and if you and I were together people would be say hey look there's a black man um so how, how did you feel about that and how did you react in that situation I think uh, I was pretty confident that I could deal with all those starings and detention. Uh, but then into my first few weeks there, I was, wow, this is too much for me. And I actually had to kind of withdraw a little bit and just kind of reflect on everything. But there were some clear intentional uh, racist remarks from uh, some locals, which I kind of shrugged off. But some of the friends that I were with at times, they kind of stood up for me to kind of defend me and to tell others, to sh- you know, to shut them up. Uh, and uh, But I think what worked really well was that I didn't understand much of the language. <laughs> and, and so some of the things that I might have been tempted to react to, uh, they just were lost in the not understanding la- the language, really. Hmm. And what kind of difference do you think it makes to you as as a Christian when you receive those kind of abusive comments or or the kind of looks and the stares and stuff? I think abusive comments, uh, I think because I'm so confident in who I am in Christ, I I just resolved and was determined to just revert everything else for advancement of the gospel and so the comments since I couldn't engage in a proper conversation with them uh, I didn't pay much attention to the comments but uh, in terms the looks those ones were the ones that I made the best of them I used them really to kind of flip things around which was you know I see you staring at me I'd greet you I'd smile at you and that kind of broke off maybe the tension and that and so that was how I managed to actually engage with lots of locals because there was to some it was genuine interest and curiosity uh, like three old folks that came to me and they even lifted my t-shirt just to check whether I was dark on the inside (laughs) as well because looking on the outside they thought oh it was just sunburned but then they had to come and lift my t-shirt and see, oh, it's actually black. Uh, difference can be, you know, we can perceive it as a curse in certain contexts, but it can be a real blessing too. We can revert it back. You know, being different meant that I attracted more attention. And by attracting more attention, there was an element of curiosity. You know, you sit at a canteen 
and people would be taking selfies and actually <laughs> taking pictures. See? And when you notice that, you know, often I would invite him to come over and sit with us, engage in conversation. And from that, we had lots of uh, spiritual conversations going on from that first meeting. Uh, it was just using that curiosity that they had. And, and so that so shows there's, the there's level of... Yeah. Quite a lot of curiosity. Curiosity, yeah. Yeah. That was so encouraging and very gracious of you, Milky, that you used your skin colour and your dreadlocks as an opportunity for the gospel. So I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the mission organisations and, yeah, and the churches that you've been involved with in the UK. Do you think you've come up against any barriers that you maybe wouldn't have done if you were a, a white British person? Uh, there are certainly some places where I thought that if I, obviously if I was a British white person, uh, my English would have been excellent and I wouldn't have had some of the struggles that I had. Mm-hmm. Culture is a big thing and, you know, dressing a certain way is a big thing, speaking perhaps in a certain way and having all the right clicks are, are good. But when you struggle with your language, sometimes you leave that place going, oh man, what have I just done? But just so uh, I think there isn't much expectation, there wasn't much expectation of me in that place. I, I think it was more because of the, the language than it was my color skin. Do you see any blind spots in in the UK church with regards to inclusion of people from a a different country whether that's to do with their their race or their customs or or their language I think uh, in terms of language I mean there are some uh, hidden assumptions really that people have and certain languages that I use without much thought and um, I was glad that uh, with the wake of uh, George Floyd's death there was a discourse going on uh, where people are re-evaluating things Uh, and so blind spots really I think many churches are not built for multiculturalism okay they very much think in a particular way uh, which those that are like us identify with and we don't think about uh, the others that are coming to join us. How do they do things? What can we do to accommodate them? And so we look after our own and don't really. Uh, those coming from abroad, they, they struggle to fit into our culture because they are different from us. And I think that's not just a cultural thing uh, or a blind spot. That's just uh, where the church is at the moment in this country, where many churches aren't very missional. And because of that lack of missionality, they don't really ask the question, what do we do with these Mm. people visiting us? Mm. Or how can we reach out to Mm. those that are visiting us that are different from us? How can we make them feel uh, comfortable? So you told me a bit about your church. You have an English-speaking congregation and a Portuguese-speaking congregation, which is one of the languages that you speak. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about that. Do you think it's good to have that separateness, uh, or is it good to to come together to worship God? Because I, I guess if we're all one in Christ Jesus, being together is good, but if you can't understand 
what's going on, that's a bit of a problem. So how does that work in your church? I think it's important that you are able to worship in the language of your heart because you can express yourself better uh, Mm -hmm. to God and, you know, deliver better sermon. But integration or, you know, bringing two congregations together poses lots of challenges. And one of them is that who's going to give the first uh, step? Uh, You know, I want to interact with you, but I perceive you as someone that is closed. You turn to your friends and those that are like you and Mm -hmm. for my security I turn to those that look like me we can come together for five minutes but then we drift apart Mm -hmm. because we find comfort somewhere else so it's it's harder work to be in that cross-cultural situation it's it's hard uh but I think it it is not impossible Mm -hmm. It requires intentionality and it requires uh, a strategy, really. You have to be really driven into bringing the two together. I think in, like, Portuguese-English congregation where you got those people have language barrier in between them as the wall that could be bridged by organising something like an English club where... Some people from one side come and they meet up with people from the other side and together they just kind of, okay, you are in this country, what you need the most is English, for instance, let's practice your English. You know, how can I help you? And and so those are little things that by helping someone do that, you create a bond. And that way you can merge the two congregations in one, uh, not because they fully understand each other, but they are working together. That's a really helpful idea. Thank you, Milky. And hope that some of the churches are able to put some of those ideas into practice. So I guess there has been a fairly long history now of white Christian missionary involvement in Africa. Are there any particular ideas about mission that have negative associations for you as a black African person? It's a big question because uh, I've just recently done a master's in international development and and this has been a theme that has made me quite, not emotional, but there is a certain uh, internal reaction to everything, really. And so imagine there is an African, there is an Asian, there is a South American, and there is an American, an English, an Australian. I want you to think about who do you think are the top three people for the leadership of this team? Who, who would be chosen to lead that group? I don't know. I guess you'd hope we'd choose them on the basis of their spiritual maturity rather than where they were from. But um, yeah. yeah, probably in practice that's not the case. I, I would guess that he would be American perhaps first and then Australian and British. Those would be the three to look out for. I'm talking about in a mission context. Yeah. It feels like the American got it all. Like the leaders uh, of the, the organizations. leaders of the organizations. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, after that, you got either the Australians or the British to lead it. The African would be perhaps the last one to be chosen. And you would be, you know, it has to be super, super outstanding, really, to be the leader of that particular group. Mm-hmm. in an international context mm-hmm. and so 
And if he is the leader, then the question is that people will have is, what is he good at? People will be questioning his ability to be on that senior position. And I think that is because of how we are conditioned. Mission comes from the West to other mm. parts of the mm. world. Mm. You know, when a Western person goes to Africa to do mission, he's a missionary. Uh, but we now we are using it more for Africans that come over. But, you know, it's in a different degree of missionary. Mm-hmm. But when you come from a, a poorer place to a Western context, you know, it's almost like, what are you doing here? You know, are you doing mission? What are you actually teaching us? It's almost like you are inferior to us and you're coming to, to teach us mm. on how to live or even Christianity. And so it's less, the one coming from Africa to Europe is less accepted than the one going from Europe to, uh, to Africa, for instance. I would say something that really frustrates me is the way that West relates to Africa in general. And that is not just limited to Christianity, for instance. Someone comes from the West, Africans put that person in a high pedestal. And, And that is, that means that, you know, someone that's never finished high school gets there, is the leader of everybody. It's not those that go from the West's fault, but it is also the mindset over there. And, and I think there is a sense that we, when we do missions, when we get there, we don't just seek to lead, but seek to serve above all. I, I usually say to myself, when I go back to Africa and I start doing missions, and a team of people come to join in in doing that mission. They come to serve. Uh, w- one thing that I will literally do is you go and work with those people. Before you stand and preach, you will have to go and work with them. You will feel what they feel. You will experience a little bit, maybe a few months. of. If you're going to stay for a long time, you do at least six months of just doing what they do. Okay, so do a normal job in that culture and learn what it's like, learn what life is like. Go work on the field with them. When they're going to the field to to work there, go and learn the trade. Mm. When when they go into the market, go with them to the market. When they go into fishing, go fish with them. Just shadow someone Mm. and do what they do. So why is that? So that when you stand up to preach, you don't just preach the life that you know in the West, but you preach a little bit about the life that they lived there mm. because you felt it in your own skin. Mm. And, and very often we fabricate ideas and we try to implement them without understanding fully the culture mm. implications, the life, the, the hardship that people live in. We want them to live in a certain way. We want them to fit in certain molds. We want to change their you know, musicality sometimes and, and the melody that they, they play. Uh, and those things, you know, that's part of our contextualizations. But we still take our baggage and try to kind of make those cultures in many territories similar to what we left back. Mm. 
Okay, so you, you told us a couple of things about leadership in international missions and then also thinking about our attitude should be one of humility and service. There's some really helpful ideas. Um, so, final thing, Milky. The listeners of this podcast, some will be those who might leave home to share the gospel internationally, some staying at home but wanting to be fully involved in global mission as senders and supporters. So, can I just ask you to finish by praying for the people who are listening? Sure. So, I, I will pray. And, Father God, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that missions is your heart of God. I'm always reminded of when you came back to life and you appeared to your disciples on that day and the first order, the first decree that you release is go into all the world and proclaim the good news. Go and teach everyone to obey everything that I've taught you. And so this is your heart, Lord, that we go and proclaim and teach others what you have taught us, God. And Lord, I pray for those that you are calling today. I pray that they will go full of conviction and determination, God, to take your kingdom into the darkest place. To be light and salt in those places, oh God. God, I pray for conviction. I pray for your spirit and your power to be with them, oh God. I pray, God, that they all have protection against the works of the enemy, oh God. I pray, oh God, that their minds will be protected. I pray, oh God, that you will have your way in their lives. I pray, O God, that they will hear you clearly, O God, and go to those places. I pray that they will persevere in face of persecution, O God. I pray, O God, that they will not shy away from everything I call them to do. I thank you, God, for calling people, even today, to go and proclaim the gospel. I pray for Britain. I pray, O God, that your church will rise up and take its stand and be the proclaimers, God. That you will be known and be made known in our world. In Jesus' name, God. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Mission Explored podcast. You can find more resources on our website at missionexplored.co.uk. And to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast app. Finally, be encouraged that Jesus promised his Holy Spirit will be with you as you are a witness for him in your home culture, with the ethnic minorities living around you, and to the ends of the earth.